Well, here I am about to do a bunch of talking, and we'll see what I can do about getting angry. This is a book study. We are going to be diving into one book, one corner of the Bible, to attempt to put ourselves not only in the shoes of its intended audience, the people to whom this, uh, this book was addressed, but then also to attempt to put them in our shoes, to ask with what they learned, with what divine inspiration was given to them hot off of the presses, how would they regard our world and our circumstances? Our first stumbling block comes from the fact that the book of James is not a book. It's what we in the business call an epistle, which is one of those annoying and redundant words that could be better replaced with letter. So rather than the book of James, we really ought to be talking about James's letter. It's better to use our most simple and everyday language, particularly in this case, because this letter holds some of the most down-to-earth, simple and everyday teaching you're going to find anywhere in the entire Bible. Where Jesus is all parable and radical action, where the books of the Torah, the first few five books of the Bible, are all story and national conflict and laying down the law, James is steadfast. Straightforward. You can take James to the bank. Which, to me, means somebody has got to explain why this book isn't so popular. Part of the reason we are doing this careful Bible study of the book of James is that it gets so consistently overlooked. For the last 200 years, Christianity in this country has been in love with a simple reading of the Bible, taking the Bible as read at face value, stripping away all the layers of interpretation and allegory that Christians in previous centuries have enjoyed. The song, Give Me That Old Time Religion, isn't asking for a return to Latin, incense, and visions of fiery angels. No, the song, Give Me That Old Time Religion, which really explains a lot about American Christianity, is about a simple, sensible faith that says you got to shape up and live right or else. Which is exactly what you find in the book of James. So why in the world is this book so ignored, so unpopular? You'd think it would be half of the bumper stickers out there in this country. And I've yet to see a single one. In fact, the epistle of James, James' letter, sorry, every time I say epistle, somebody shoot me with a water gun, has had a rough history from the get-go, not just in the last couple centuries. It was ignored and almost rejected by a couple of the early Christian writers who wrote about the earliest stages of what became the New Testament. And then, 1,500 years later, Martin Luther calls it an epistle of straw, just garbage. And he actually wanted it gone, along with a couple others of his least favorite, Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation. 
which might just be because he was such a raging anti-Semite. I mean, two of those books are actually named after Jews, Hebrews and Jude. And this one is by a Jew, written to Jews. And then I guess he didn't know what to do with Revelations. But I don't know. Hard to say. He was also really, really into this justification by faith and really, really into Scripture. And so anybody who says that things like your faith without works is dead, if it makes it into Scripture, starts to bring Luther's house down on his head a little bit. And then this long tradition of being kind of marginalized continues to this day. A lot of people ignore James. Which is funny, because traditionally at least, it was well understood that the book of James was written by none other than James the Just, the leader of the group in Jerusalem who we just read about in Acts, the author of that letter, that much shorter letter, that we read in Acts to be taken all around the the eastern Mediterranean to the communities of Gentiles. Apparently, James had a whole lot more to say to the communities of Jews. Because rather than a paragraph and a half, the book of James, James's letter, goes on for five chapters. And yet... This attribution that the book was written by Jesus' own brother brings some of its own problems with it that might help explain this book's lack of enthusiastic reception. For one thing, it never mentions Jesus' divinity or resurrection. It refers to James, a slave of of the Lord Jesus, certainly calls Jesus Lord, But divinity and resurrection don't receive any special mention. Another strike against its authorship that people have noticed in recent years is that it's written in really good Greek. And nobody thinks that the brother of a carpenter in Nazareth should have really good Greek. And then there's the charge that it's not a letter at all. It doesn't really hold to the format, they say. It's just a a clump of wisdom literature from the early church all piled together and put under the heading of a letter, under James's name. Just a, a, a pile of pearls strung together, but with no real order or logic to them. But, to be fair... It does use the same fluency of Greek language the same word choice even, and the same practical concerns as that letter we just read in Acts, which, supposedly written by the same James, comes from a completely different source. In fact, a lot of the terminology, a lot of unusual words, make it into that short paragraph that also show up in the letter of James. And the concerns, the down-to-earth stuff, the, this is how I would like you to live out your daily life, but with a light touch. We have found it good, according to us and to the Spirit. You would do well to abstain from these things. Not terribly, overwhelmingly heavy-handed, but nonetheless, very clear, very down-to-earth. 
And the good Greek? Well, who knows? Perhaps this was written by later Christians who were emulating James's style. Perhaps even later Christians who were preserving a sermon they had passed down orally from James. They would have had good Greek. But we also know that such figures as Paul and probably the church leaders in Jerusalem, they had scribes. They hired people to help them with this or asked for members of the community to do it for free. We'll never know. What we do know is that whoever wrote it had really good Greek. And that may have been James himself. Out of Nazareth, it was a well-educated, very, very smart family by all accounts. James, the brother of Jesus, the witness to all of Jesus' life and teachings, would have been constantly plagued by the people around him saying, do you believe this? Do you believe that? What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about what's coming next? To which James, according to this, replied with silence. And not just silence, but recommendations for silence. Listen more than you speak. Do justice. Work out your faith. These are the important things. And that non-answer, that perhaps difference in perspective between Jesus' rabid followers and Jesus' brother who had to clean up his messes all through childhood, might explain a lot about why this letter has never found itself popular among the main body of Christians. I like to think that there's something distinctly Jewish about James and about his concerns. He's not going to shoot out of the sky people who want to make broad, beautiful, sweeping statements about Christ and about the world to come. But he's going to keep his own focus here and now. Practical. And I find myself in a community somewhat famous among the Christian churches for being sympathetic to that perspective. We Mennonites are a little bit more here and now than most this, in particular, is a congregation of engineers, counselors, homemakers, students, and the occasional business person, and yes, farmer. Still got a couple Mennonite farmers around. We're pretty practical. And so for us, much in this book rings true. And for Mennonites throughout the centuries, especially those who like to thumb their noses at Luther we have found ourselves a little bit in love with our epistle of straw. That's enough for authorship, although we'll talk much more about context in a bit. Let's dig into the book. We've already read the first five verses, James 1 through 5, a letter addressed 
to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That is to say, to the Israelites living among the Goyim, the Gentiles, the nations of the world, which is what those words mean. So it is distinctly Jewish, and Jewish somewhat in contrast to Gentile, where the letter we read from Acts was specifically addressed to the Gentile communities of believers. In many ways, this is its sister letter written to the Jewish believers. And I call it a very Jewish letter. The Jewish tradition is tremendously varied. You look at Kabbalah, and it's as much about mysticism and the world to come as any religion. But there is, in Judaism, a long and glorious strain of logic and scholarship rooted in Scripture with a distinctly practical this-world focus. So, we will read this book in many ways as much as we can as first century Jews would have read it, bringing with us their fears, their doubts, their concerns, and their sources of hope. The Jewish community is a resilient one and has had to be for many, many centuries. Millennia, in fact, dating back to their initial persecution, imprisonment, and enslavement by the Egyptians. Jewish humor comes out of this context. Jewish humor is almost a necessity of life. And in that humor, no trait stands out so much as where we find James leading us. Perseverance. Blessed is the one that endures temptation, for when we are tried, we shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to us, those that love him. Let no one say, when they are tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither does God tempt anyone. But everyone is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. This word about endurance, about the one who is solid and knows what they think, knows what to do, and sticks by it, is something that Jewish humor elevates and discusses to this very day. The one I stumbled across most recently was this. Prominent scientists have just announced that, as a result of the global warming phenomenon, an uncontrollable flood would soon devastate planet Earth and bring death to every living being. There are only three days left before doomsday. The chief rabbi of Israel goes on international radio and says, fellow Jews, we must all accept the will of God with humility. We must prepare ourselves to meet our maker and pray that God may receive us with love and compassion. The leaders of the Hasidim address their communities and say, Yidin, let us do teshuva and repent from our sins. Let us be prepared for the great day of judgment, at which time we will appear in the presence of the court on high. The science and biology students of the universities of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Negev, together with the leading scientists of the Haifa Technon and Weizmann Institute, immediately go on the air and say, Fellow Jews everywhere, We have heard the terrible news, and we must not waste any time, for we have just three days to learn how to live underwater. 
James comes in the middle of a very long tradition of Jews criticizing everyone around them, especially other Jews, for not being Jewish enough and for not knowing how to tough it out. This conversation on, on enduring temptation can sound very foreign to our Christian-tinged ears. After all, how does this line that God does not tempt anybody line up with the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer, or the word-for-word word instruction from Jesus Christ, which says to God, lead us not into temptation? It's the same Greek word. I looked it up. Perasmos. It means a, a trial, a test, which is why it's also translated, lead us not into the time of trial. It means don't test us, but deliver us from evil. And yet, Psalm 11.5 says, God tests the righteous. Here we have this ping pong between the ancient Jewish tradition, the words of the Lord's prayer that Jesus speaks, James going back to the other side saying that God, yes, indeed, tempts and tries us. Oh, no, wait, God, that God does not tempt and try us. And then Christian tradition, which says that God does, that it's all in God's hands. How do we sort this one out? Once again, we can lean heavily on the Jewishness of James's letter. A Jewishness which has recognized for many, many centuries what Niels Bohr said only a few hundred years ago, that the opposite of a true statement is, is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth is usually another profound truth. This has been the modus operandi for Jewish discussion ever since the Torah was first spoken. Things like, when something terrible happens, telling someone it's not your fault, which is true, but which is completely opposite from telling them next time you could do such and such to avoid that situation, which is also true. Which is it? It's not your fault or next time you could do something a little bit different. We live in a world in which both of these profound truths are patently and obviously True. Jesus saying, you must hate your father and mother. Then turning around and saying, love your neighbor, love your enemies. Well, whoa, what if your mother is your neighbor? What are you supposed to do then? <laughs> I mean, it takes it takes Greek logicians to really tie themselves in knots over this kind of thing. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the Hebrew tradition of logic, which is significantly more grounded and understands that Jesus is using strong language to make a point and that what appears to be a contradiction is just simply recognizing the reality that in order to do the right thing, sometimes you may have to hurt your family and that in order to do the right thing, sometimes you will have to love your enemy. Opposite things, both true. God controls all things, so whatever happens is because God has made it. God is good, and in him there is no shadow at all, as the song says. 
God may have set the stage for all things, but it is our action that is allowed to play out. Which is true. Well, in a certain sense, both are true. In a much realer sense, we don't know. We don't know how much control our free will has. I'll get back to you when the neuroscientists are clear on this one. And we don't know how God relates to this world and to our lives exactly. There's so much that we don't know. But along with James, I will tell you something that is not true. Something that is wrong. People saying the Lord's Prayer reading Psalm 11 and then saying, well, I prayed to God not to lead me into temptation, but I'm tempted, so God did. And that means that God is tempting me, and so it's okay for me to do what I want because it's what God wants me to do. See how that's nice and neat and logical and completely full of baloney? It's pretty just plainly self-serving logic made to get us off the hook for something that we know in our hearts is wrong. And that's what James is talking about. But I want to get a bit more specific about what James is talking about. And this is where I go beyond the style of conversation and jokes and and literature that his Jewish audience would have had. And I get to their fears, their concerns, their daily prayers, and their temptations. Because for the last 200 years in this country, whenever we have deigned to read the book of James, we have imagined the sins it talks about being the sins that we were talking about. Drinking, gambling, sleeping around. And that is because we have always insisted on being blind to our own worst sins. James 1.15 says, Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You can imagine how drinking and gambling can lead to death, but sleeping around... Isn't that kind of how life sometimes accidentally happens? And they all involve extra steps. This, this, this movement from weakening the will, sin, poverty, degradation, death. Those extra steps concern James. Because the chief sin in his context is exactly what happens at the end of those extra steps. The chief sin that James is addressing, and that as a theme, I will argue, ties together the book of James so that it is more than just a bunch of pearls of wisdom, but is in fact a united letter with a united theme to a specific purpose and people. The sin that leads to death is violence. We never, and those of you who have been with me for two years know that I speak about this with some regularity, we never emphasize enough in our Christian churches that our faith was formed in the middle of what we would call a race war. 
It was Jews versus Greeks in the streets with tens of thousands dead on both sides. It started before Jesus was born. In fact, Nazareth saw itself almost wiped out by Romans just before Jesus was born. And it continued after Jesus' death with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and then 30 years later, another violent rebellion centered around Alexandria and then about 30 years after that, the final Roman-Jewish war, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, where a Jewish leader set himself up as Messiah, minted coins with a new temple that was not yet built on it, and led his people into a conflict with the Romans where the Emperor Hadrian decided to simply execute almost everybody and drive the remainder out of Jerusalem, making it into a Roman city. This context of official institutional warfare and unofficial neighbor versus neighbor bloodshed on the daily is what the Jews of the ancient Near East prayed about, thought about, worried about. And it is returning violence for violence that was the temptation of which James speaks. The perseverance that he holds up is the perseverance to endure, to withstand and not lash out, not form your own posse and go burn down their house and kill their kids because that's what they did to your cousin last night. That is the divine perseverance. That is our context. Knowing that, now listen to the words of James. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. This idea of a word planted in us is referring to Jesus and God's logic revealed in Jesus who died to save friend and enemy. But it is also a reference, a reference that would not upset any listeners in the synagogue who would hear this letter who were not Christian. Because it hearkens all the way back to Deuteronomy 30:14, I will put my word in your hearts. God's natural law of mercy of kindness to the alien, of making peace. A law that pulls on the heartstrings of all people, implanted. The letter speaks very, very well to Jews who have no faith in Christ whatsoever. The author of the letter identifies himself very clearly as a slave of the Lord Jesus and refers to Jesus as Lord throughout, but avoids making controversial doctrinal statements that would have made Jewish listeners shut off. This letter is an act of Christian devotion, a reaching out, a tr an attempt to make peace. It sees a world in which good people 
people of faith, be they Christians or Jews, are tempted to use the methods of the world to protect themselves and to take over. Is an epistle, this epistle letter has a real and immediate purpose to encourage Christian Jews not to revert to violence in their response to the violence around them. About a week and a half ago, there was a shooting in El Paso, Texas. Another one. This one was interesting because where the others have left it somewhat implied, aside from Dylan Roof, who shot up a congregation in South Carolina, this one made it explicit. The race war has begun, was his manifesto. The same filth people have been saying for thousands of years. Now, to us, Americans, and our context of racial history, what was happening in the Middle East was, would not look like a race war. People had the same faces, the same noses, often the same hair. But do not make a mistake. They were of different ethnicities, and the differences mattered. What was going on in the Balkans in the 90s would not have looked to us like a race war. But make no mistake, the reason why we have people in Kosovo trying to build rebuild people's lives and provide a sense of normalcy and comfort and peace is because of an inter-ethnic conflict. And so when I use the term race war, yes, technically I'm wrong. But that's what we call the big bad of ethnic strife in our country. And so I'm using it to awaken, awaken us to the reality that this conflict between people of different religions, different languages, different backgrounds, and occasionally different phenotypes has been going on for time out of mind. The same enemy, the same evil, the same Satan playing both sides, getting good people to kill each other out of fear. Getting bad people into positions of power fueled by fear. You heard me right on this one. Racism is straight-up satanic. And our brothers and sisters in Christ, faithful worshipers in the black churches of this country who have suffered from it for centuries, know it very well and have never hesitated to say what I just said. Just yesterday, one of our leading presidential candidates had this to say. My father's whole family was wiped out by Hitler's white nationalism. We will go to war against white nationalism and racism in every aspect of our country. Here we have a long tradition of Jews criticizing everybody around them, especially the Jews, for not being Jewish enough. The question, of course, here is what does this presidential candidate mean by go to war? Does he mean picking up the weapons of the enemy, committing murder in the streets? I don't think so. I think it's pretty plain to almost every single person who's going to read this message 
that he's using war as a metaphor. In fact, the exact same metaphor that Paul uses, warfare. Talk of standing strong, holding the line, equipping yourself with your military gear is all metaphorical. And I believe this quote does not represent a a falling to the weapons of the enemy, but rather a rallying cry for us to take up our spiritual weapons, the weapons of peace against this great ongoing and ancient evil. We're in this together. The epistle letter of James is addressed to a Jewish community, but it does so explicitly to say, do not separate yourselves because we are all in this together. It's not enough to simply lament, to simply Say in your heart, yeah, racism is bad. You have to hold to your conviction and act or else your faith is hollow and your feet stand on shifting ground, blown and tossed by the sea, which is where James starts. Verse six. This already echoes where I'm going to go next Sunday. With, verse, with chapter 2 of the book of James, which it gets famous for its link between faith and works. But I think all of us, imagining the horrible evil that was taking place in Palestine at the time of writing, and the horrible evil that has taken place, is taking place, and we fear will take place in this country, can all agree that simply holding faith tenants in your heart without action is not sufficient. The church, I believe, was conceived by Christ and brought into popular expression, brought, drawing in tens of thousands of people by God as, in, among other things, a solution to race war. To attempt to head off this kind of horrible violence, to meet it and defeat it. Ethnic conflict, which is, if we're honest, the motive behind most wars. I wasn't able in my research this week to find a war that did not have an ethnic conflict component, even if it wasn't the first original technical cause of the conflict. In the first century, after the death of Christ, the church failed. Maybe it wasn't our fault. Maybe we were simply too weak and there was no preventing the Roman Jewish wars. There was no preventing the destruction of the temple. There was no preventing the wipeout of Jerusalem. But then we failed again and again. And although sometimes we have had success, we need to keep our eye on those failures as we look to our own world and our own lives because we're needed One of the great purposes for which we were forged, the covenant of uh, that we drink together, the blood that we share, is needed now more than ever right where we're at. 
And in James, we find practical steps for how to do it. Not how to win a race war, because when Satan's wars are fought, there are no winners, but how to defeat a race war, how to keep the war itself from happening. Ask for wisdom. Believe in time that it will come. This is the advice of James. Be persistent, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Lift up the lowly and act out your natural implanted instinct for mercy. This is our lesson in victory today from James the Just. This is our training, our first and our finest weapon against hate.